0: Maisie Chan is a Birmingham-born children's author now living in Glasgow. She's also the current Dr. Gavin Wallace Fellow or Writer in Residence at Peter Pan Moat Brain, Scotland, the National Centre for Children's Literature. This July sees the publication of the first in her new Tiger Warrior series, an adventure quest featuring a brilliant cast of magical animal zodiac creatures, deadly demons, and
1: spine-tingling spirits. In their recent conversation, Nikki Gamble asked Maisie to begin by telling us a little bit about herself. I'm in Glasgow but I'm from Birmingham as you can probably tell from my accent and uh, born and bred in Birmingham. I grew up with uh, my parents Ron and Jean so I was fostered by them and then adopted Uh, but they fostered lots of Chinese children so I did feel that I had lots of Chinese influence and food around me. I started writing creatively in 2006. I used to write short stories for adults and I remember librarians would tell me that my voice was quite good for children and I got onto Megaphone which was an Arts Council funded scheme with Lila Rashid Um, And that was 2016. And I had a whole year of mentoring with her. We had lots of masterclasses from Patrice Lawrence, Candy Gourlay, Alex Wheaton. And I wrote my first novel, which was for teens at that time and got an agent. And then I decided to write a middle grade book, which is Danny Chung Does Not Do Maths. I just like to write lots of different types of things, to be honest. I think it's because I'm a Gemini. I like to try different things and be excited by writing. So I've always got loads of projects on the go.
0: And uh, Danny Chung, which is also about to be published, is very different to the series that we're mainly focusing on today. So one is very much set in the real world and the other draws very heavily on Chinese myth, traditional tale uh, and folklore. I understand that you were also a storyteller at one point.
1: Yes, so um, I kind of fell into it around the Beijing Olympics in 2008. I was asked by um, Emergency Exit Arts, who were doing a big sort of exhibition in Birmingham with the BBC, if I would do some storytelling, oral storytelling, which I'd never done before. And they commissioned a costume for me. So I dressed up as the Chinese goddess Guanyin who is the goddess of compassion and mercy and they commissioned a big kind of swan for me to sit in and I was like pushed around Birmingham in a swan uh, and told like five minute stories uh, a few of them were from about Guan Yin the goddess and then one was about four dragons mm-hmm. uh, and it was just fun I would sort of just dress up and feel very goddess-like <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's where my sort of First foray into Chinese myths came about. Um, And I just really liked the goddess that I used to dress up as because she she had quite an interesting history. She was sort of a Buddhist figure, uh, a bodhisattva, but originally in some cultures it was a man who then changed into a female form. And sometimes you see her with willow or children, or water, um, or on a lotus, and I did feel sort of transformed, actually, when I would put on this outfit, and I I feel that I learn a lot about Chinese mythology and culture, because I'm adopted, I don't know that stuff naturally, so it's always fun for me to find out more, it makes me feel more Chinese in some way, to dig these stories up and tell them to a modern audience, so yeah. Yeah.
0: I want to kind of spend a little bit of time thinking about this body of work that is Chinese myth and folklore. It seems quite complicated to me, but maybe that should be no surprise. China's a huge country and there must surely have been different stories told in different regions. It's so vast.
1: Yes, it's huge. And there's different languages and dialects and different cuisine, but people especially in the UK, they think it's one thing. They think Chineseness is a monolith. But there are some very well-known stories, such as Chang'e, which I haven't told that one yet, but um, it's about the moon goddess, and she's got this little white rabbit, and Netflix have created this movie, Over the Moon, so she's very famous. And then Guanyin, this goddess, is quite well-known in all sort of Chinese diasporas, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Um, and it seems like it's a mishmash of religion, but also stories, like oral stories, like Mulan. I've written a couple of Mulan stories before. um, And there's different incarnations of Mulan, like sometimes she's got a brother and sometimes she's got a sister. I think it's, it's kind of like European fairy tales, actually, where when you dig deeper, there's lots of different versions of Cinderella. There's lots of different versions of Red Riding Hood. And it's the same with asian mythology like there's a vietnamese cinderella there's a korean cinderella so maybe it's to do with like archetypes of stories actually that lots of different cultures have them um, and i i've also written a book called stories from around the world which was a collection of myths legends and fairy tales and i found that often you know the older stories are very dark and so you need to rewrite them for a modern audience so that they Maybe the moral is there, but you're not scaring children. (laughs) Some of them are really dark.
0: You mentioned about um, a sort of blend of folklore and religion. Are we talking about kind of Buddhism, Taoism or um, Confucianism? You know, what, what feeds into Chinese folklore?
1: It feels like it's a mixture of all of those things. And when I was in my mid twenties, I went to live in Taipei to learn Mandarin, and my friend took me to a temple once, and i I didn't know what kind of temple it was, but I think it was Taoist temple, and there were like lots of statues. And I said, "Oh, you know." What kind of religion is this? And she's like, oh, it's Taoism, but there's bits of Buddhism. And, you know, there was lots of Confucian temples as well in Taipei. So it felt like it was a mishmash of all these things. And it felt that people would just take what they needed. So lots of people would like burn money and offer things to gods, you know, to make their business better or they would burn incense so for me it's I had to ask I've asked Chinese people if I write about this goddess am I being respectful is that okay and most people have said yes because everyone loves her and she's in lots of stories like the monkey king story the journey to the west so she's in that and there's lots of different stories that she's in so mm. I do feel yeah I ask people as well who are British Chinese or Chinese if I don't know something I'll go and ask them for their opinion Yeah,
0: Interesting.
1: With the Tiger Warrior, because it's got the Dragon King as the bad guy, I did ask some experts, is it okay if there is a dragon that's um, a bad guy? Because usually dragons are revered and they're less creatures. And uh, I was told, yes, that like any sort of creature, that there'll be good and bad. And it depends on that personification. But there are so many different creatures. Like if you just Google mythological creatures, you'll get a list of like 50 different creatures who all look really odd. And some some have like a bottom for a face and stuff like that. Really odd (laughs) creatures. Um, But what I did really enjoy finding out was that there would be different dragons. So like Vietnam and China would have different dragons and Japan would have different dragons and Korea would have different dragons. They often have a camel head and the body of a serpent, and eagle claws. So there's kind of nine different animals that are put together to make this Chinese dragon. Um, they're very different, aren't they, from, say, Welsh uh, yes. and Yes, dragons? They don't fly. So they don't have wings, first of all, uh, and they don't breathe fire. And they're more associated with the seas and the rivers and they bring water. So if, um, there's a lot of stories where... Villagers had a drought and they would like pray to the dragons to help them. So that's one of the stories I used to tell.
0: Let's talk about uh, Tiger Warrior, the whole idea, where it came from.
1: Haché approached me for this collaboration and I was really happy to do it because I wanted to write more fancy magic and portals and that kind of writing. Because um, my writing is usually contemporary realism, very much grounded in the real world. And I found that to challenge myself as a writer, as a children's writer, I wanted to do something like this, which is more action based, more mytholo- mythological and more imaginative, to be honest, because when I first started writing for children, I didn't think I was that imaginative. And then you see all these books that are doing really well. There's portals and magic and odd characters. And I was like, can I do that? I, mean, I don't know. Um I want to. So it was a really good opportunity to have a go at it. And um, they are a lot of fun to write. And I think when you're a children's author, one of the great things is that you have fun when you write your stories.
0: Yeah, it really comes across. It's an action packed story. Uh, Let's discover a little bit about the two main characters. Well, the, the main character, first of all, is Jack, isn't
1: it? Yes, Jack is mixed. So he's British, but he's half Chinese and his mum's white and his father has died but his grandfather which is Ye Ye in Chinese so that's what we call him in the book he passes on this coin which is magic um, and it summons the 12 zodiac animals and it also opens a portal to the Jay Kingdom which the tiger warrior who is now Jack has to protect and look after so it always begins in the real world and it always ends in the real world. But the middle of the book is in the Jade Kingdom where every book, Jack has to fight an enemy.
0: Let's talk about these 12 animals of the Zodiac. I think one of the things that really comes across, you know, you're straight in there with this story because it's it's only a 100 odd pages, you know. So you have to get right in there. Um, and very quickly you establish characteristics for these so that he can actually build relationships with these animals which I thought was lovely.
1: Thank you yeah so each animal has a power that Jack has to harness but also they've got individual character traits that often bring a lot of comedy to the book which I think sometimes with these action series is not much humor it's more about fighting or killing the beasts and stuff like that but in this book I use the animals for humor so for instance the rooster just appears when he's not supposed to appear and creates a bit of chaos and stuff like that or pigs eating stuff when he's supposed to be battling so yeah it's a good way to get humor into the book And
0: he's a novice, so I mean, it sounds wonderful that he's got twelve animals that he can who have amazing powers. I mean, the snake lends him the power of invisibility. The tiger, I suppose, is the closest to what could be called like a totem animal for him, as in he's the tiger warrior. So that's the one that he's closest to and has all this kind of fire power, but it's limited because otherwise you
1: could do anything with these 12 animals yeah yeah so with with most children's stories you want your main character to learn something and go on a journey so he is the tiger warrior and every tiger warrior is born in the year of the tiger which actually my son is and the book starts with him as a computer gamer um but he has to learn new skills as a tiger warrior and in this book, in particular, he kind of melds those computer skills into the battle at the end. So we we have the tiger, which is firepower, so he can like breathe fireballs or throw fireballs. So yeah, it's really action packed, and each animal's really fun and got a different um, skill. And it, it gives the the series structure as well, because then each book is about something different.
0: Let's talk about the plot of this story. So the other world that Jack uh, travels to is the Jade Kingdom that you've talked about, and that's ruled over by the Jade Emperor. Now, we've heard about the Jade
1: Emperor from mythology. Yeah, Um, Were there other emperors as well? So the Jade Emperor and the Dragon King, actually, they're sort of archetypal characters, um, so there's di- there's different incarnations of the dragon King and I imagine that the same with the 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 Jade emperor so it's not like he's got a name it's a kind of position uh, and in this book he rules the heavenly realm which is connected to earth and if the heavenly realm gets defeated then earth is next so that's why Jack needs to be the tiger warrior and protect the jade kingdom and Princess Lee is the jade Uh, emperor's daughter and she has magical powers too and she can transform into the feng huang which is the phoenix the chinese phoenix Um, and she's like a fierce phoenix bird in the book and she's his age she's jack's age so that gives you two protagonists which the reader can identify with Mm. Um, and and the jade emperor even though he's he is all all all-powerful Actually, he needs their help in the book, so it gives the children, the characters, but also the readers, that agency to do something. Mm. And then the Dragon King is a reoccurring villain, um, so he's the main villain of the first book. But then, as the series goes along, there'll be different villains, but he's always in the background as well.
0: Mm. And a lot of humour comes through uh, through the relationship of Princess Lee and Jack
1: to. Yeah, so she's obviously grown up in the Jay Kingdom and he's grown up in contemporary Britain. So their understanding of each other is a little bit skewed because like, he holds his hand up for a high five or a fist bump, but she doesn't get what he's doing. So, yeah, using that kind of juxtaposition of contemporary Britain with ancient China and how each can learn from each other, mm-hmm. uh, that creates some of the humour as well
0: book one is published in July. I know that there are at least another two coming, probably more um, as well. Uh, Without giving us too much, can you say a little bit about what books two and three will be about, the kind of general idea?
1: The second book is about fox demons. And I have written about Japanese fox demons before. They're called kitsune in Japan. You get them in Korean culture as well. And um, there's a, a special one called the Nine-Tailed Fox. So if listeners know Pokemon, there is a Pokemon called the Nine-Tailed Fox. So the, the baddie for the second book is the Nine-Tailed Fox and she's got a massive fox army. And that takes place at the Summer Palace, which is a slightly different, usually it's a Jay J-Kingdom in the village, but this is in the Summer Palace, which is in the countryside. And then the third book is around the Nian character, the New Year's... You might have heard the New Year's Eve story about this creature, Nian, because Nian means year in Chinese, in Mandarin, uh, and he's a ferocious beast with fangs, and he eats children. (laughs) Uh, And Jack...
0: Great for children. Yeah.
1: amazing. (laughs) Jack has to stop him on uh, Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year, from devouring the village so that one's yeah that one's quite tense to be honest
0: <laughs> mm. exciting though you mentioned pokemon there are there are there quite a few connections between
1: chinese myths and the creatures in pokemon Some. so if you look at even language so if you look at characters japanese characters that they write with they've got kanji which is this sort of single or you know not many lines and then they've got the chinese letters that they use so over time and career as well then language and culture has been moved from different country to different country so you often find that um, these myths and like even dragons that i mentioned earlier myths have traveled from Different, you know, China to Japan and back again, or to Korea, Vietnam. Uh, so you do see a lot of similar kind of creatures. They might call them something else, but there there is quite a lot of overlap. And when I was writing stories from around the world, I did see that there was lots of commonalities between countries. So I did a story on Maui, and even though Polynesia spread out, they would all have these different Maui legends, uh, and some had. You know, very similar beginnings, even though they were totally different islands, thousand miles apart, but they had these Maui stories that were very similar. And it's the same with Chinese mythology and some Japanese mythology, where you'll have very similar creatures. Yeah.
0: You've also talked quite a lot about the kind of female characters, and they seem to be quite active and have a lot of agency. Do you feel that that's a difference between Chinese mythology and how sort of more European fairy stories have developed and evolved?
1: So we had uh, Mulan who was you know she went to war for her father and pretended to be him and then growing up sort of I grew up watching lots of martial arts movies and some of them were would be set in like ancient China and Sometimes you would get a female character that was like a martial arts um, expert. And like Michelle Yeoh um, had a film called The Heroic Trio, which was three women. I think it was Anita Mui, Maggie Chung and Michelle Yeoh. And I remember watching that sort of the early 90s and they had strong kick butt women. Um, So I think in in Chinese culture, there has been that in the movies and in some books as well. Which goes against some of the other, you know, Chinese views of women. You know, you had people that used to have buying their feet and the concubines and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, there has been, a, and there was a pirate. There's this Chinese pirate uh, who was female, um, one of the most successful pirates ever. Um, I can't remember her name, but she was Chinese as well. You know, she commanded this massive fleet of pirates. So, I'd like to write about her actually. <laughs> so, I think there have been examples of women like that in yeah in Chinese mythology and legend yeah
0: fascinating um I could talk to you about myth and legend all day it it seems like you've got so much bubbling away there and you just sound so uh full of things that you'd like to share but I'd like to give just a moment to your other novel that's coming out uh, very soon which is Danny Chung does not do maths correct why doesn't he do math
1: (laughs) (laughs) so he's an artist he loves to draw comics and the book is sort of playing on that model minority stereotype that all Chinese people are good at maths and um, his parents like lots of parents not just Chinese parents want him to do well and be academic I think that's a theme that lots of children face and he doesn't want to do maths. And one of his comics is called Danny Chung Does Not Do Maths because he draws it during a math class. Instead of doing his lesson, he's like drawing. <laughs> what he, he draws what he could be doing instead of maths. Mm. So that's why the book's called Danny Chung Does Not Do Maths.
0: Mm. And full of humour and yes. uh, rooted in the real world and relates a lot to many children's lives. How much of you is in Danny Chung? We, did, you do, did you like maths? Would you have preferred to be drawing a
1: comic? Um, I I won my first art competition when when I was five years old in reception class and I won five pounds. <laughs> so I, I think, yeah, naturally I was more drawn to the arts and writing, but I was I was all right at maths. I could do it. Uh, I got a B at GCSE maths, but I just I don't remember any of it now. Like if I have to add up stuff, it doesn't come quickly to me because my brain has just pushed it out. <laughs> uh, so I think yeah, I, I think Danny's a little bit like me in that he's more naturally an artist, mm-hmm. and I'm from Birmingham and the book set in a sort of suburb of Birmingham, a fictional suburb of Birmingham. And it's about belonging. And I think when I was writing it, I didn't realise how much there was of me in it until I look, look into it now. And I'm like, oh, actually, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's about his grandmother too that comes from China and she moves into his room and she takes the top bunk of his bed. I know. Yeah, she, she's terrible. That's a
0: big no no <laughs> Yeah. Take the bottom bunk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it's about his relationship with her. Most of the book follows his relationship and... He has to look after her during the Easter holiday. So obviously, if you're an 11-year-old boy, you don't really want to be taking your granny around with you. So it's about him finding her things to do and he takes her to bingo. That's
0: lovely. Uh, One other thing I'd just like to mention, uh, that's the work that you've done through setting up bubble tea writers because there aren't that many Southeast Asian British writers at the moment are there so you've actually done some work to change that
1: yeah so um it all started in 2018 and I'd been mentored for a whole year and I thought what can I do to help create more British Chinese British Asian writers and I offered on Twitter to mentor someone for a year and those people that applied said to me oh you know usually we're alone we don't know another british chinese writer so could you make a facebook group for us where we can all get together and get to know each other and i was like oh yeah sure you know and so i created this space um so it's a private facebook group called bubble tea writers network and i just used bubble tea because it was like a quick image that you you kind of know it means east asian um and now there's about 130 writers in there So you need to be based in the UK, you need to be interested in writing and of East Asian or Southeast Asian heritage, and you can just join and I post every week also I post opportunities for writers that I see on Twitter or on other Facebook pages Uh, and it's a place where you can ask questions so often I'll ask a question if I don't know something specific about Chinese culture I can ask people that might know more than me it's also a place where you can share your workshops or your publications and get just get support for your work and sometimes we've met up so in London we've had a couple dim sum meetings um, in London, Chinatown, and that's been really nice. So, yeah, it's great just to have this kind of online community.
0: And do you see many people on that journey to publication? I'm sure that's not the only reason that people join the group, but are we seeing more people coming through, getting closer to publication and being published?
1: Yeah, so the last uh, few weeks, I've had some calls from a couple of the writers and I think two of them have got agent offers. So that's been really exciting. And I know there's a few children's writers that I've, I've read their work and I mentored one of them for a year, Louis Sit. So I'm hoping that there's a few more people, especially children's writers that can get agents and then publish, but it takes years, but it is, it's nice to hear that people are getting interest from agents. Yeah.
0: Well, it's been joyous talking to you as well today, Maisie. Thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner.
1: Thank you very much. It's been great. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have
0: enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.